Before we get into today's podcast with photographer William Albert Allard, I wanted to tell you about a new file transfer tool I've been using lately called PicDrop. PicDrop is a file transfer tool designed by a professional photographer with photographer's needs in mind. With PicDrop, you can easily create private galleries for your clients where they can download and share photo selections. I've been using PicDrop for a while now and really enjoy how easy it is to just drag and drop my photos online and can also just easily access my photos on my mobile phone or on my laptop. With PicDrop, I know all my work is safely stored and I can easily access on the go. Prior to PicDrop, I was using outdated platforms like Dropbox and WeTransfer, but with PicDrop, they really know what photographers need and really help just kind of streamline my workflow. So with today's episode, if you go to PicDrop.com, you'll get three months free when you sign up by entering the promo code PHOTOBANTER, one word. So definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think, but remember to enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, one word, when you sign up at PickDrop.com and you'll get three months free of the PickDrop file transfer tool. But without further ado, we'll now get into today's podcast episode with photographer William Albert Allard. Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer William Albert Allard. Bill started his career at National Geographic in 1964 and has contributed to 44 geographic articles as a staff, freelance, and contract photographer and writer. In this interview, I speak to Bill about his first assignment for Nat Geo, documenting Amish culture in rural Pennsylvania, as well as his approach to gaining the trust of his subjects. Bill is well known for his photos of the American West, documenting cowboys, ranchers, and the rural culture of places such as Montana, Wyoming, and Nevada, to name a few. I've always enjoyed Bill's work for the richness and color and its ability to really immerse himself into whatever subject he's photographing. William Albert Allard was recently awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Geographic Society and is largely regarded as one of the greatest living photographers working today. I was really pumped to get a chance to speak with Bill, so I hope you enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. All right, well, I now welcome on uh, William Albert Allard. Uh, Bill, how we doing, man? Uh, it's good, been a crazy last year or so uh, in the world, but uh, uh, how's life? It was a little strange, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> life, yeah. Is, uh, life is good. It's yeah, man. And I had to say congratulations. I know you just uh, got the Lifetime Achievement Award for Nat Geo um, from the Photo Society. I was just kind of curious, like, uh, what that kind of meant to you to kind of get that uh, really Well, that's much appreciated, you know, especially when it comes from your peers. Yep. Uh, very much appreciated. You bet. Yeah. Although, I, as I've said before, it's it's kind of feels kind of strange for being awarded for doing something all your life that you really enjoyed. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it was, it was such a pleasurable career. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, like, you know, a lot of people strive to do something they love for a career. It's, it's really hard to do. Um, like growing up, did you always envision yourself being a photographer? Like, no, what you, no, no. Not, not at all. Uh, I didn't have much of any kind of vision in my teen years. I didn't have any direction at all. Hmm. I, uh, after high school, got married very soon after high school. It was kind of the product of the 1950s. Yeah. I had an older, slightly older sister who told me I was, I was working as a construction lineman for the 
Northwestern Bell Telephone Company, and she told me she thought I could be doing a little something better with my life. So uh, we, my wife and I had no children. We married two years. I quit my job to enroll in the Minneapolis School of Fine Arts, a professional arts school, uh, because my grades were such I couldn't have gotten in the university. My high school grades were so bad. But uh, as soon as I quit my job, of course, my wife got pregnant. But uh, I put in five years of school then, one year in fine arts school, and then four at the University of Minnesota. And it's at Minnesota. I, I wanted to be a writer. Mm. Uh, that's, that was my, my, my goal at a point. Um, and then I was in, I, I went in one year in art school, had no burning ambition to be a painter, probably didn't have the talent either. You don't paint your first year in art professional art school anyway but yeah i decided i want to be a writer transferred to university of minnesota was in a reporting class one day when a very enthusiastic young professor associate professor named r smith schooneman came into the reporting class to talk about photojournalism and that caught my eye and my ear and from that point on i became a double major and i tried to take everything i could in writing everything i could in photojournalism uh, but as far as the writing goes, writing is, is very hard work. Good writing is mm -hmm. hard work. I think I'm a good writer, but it's, good writing is hard work. So I never wanted to be a general assignment writer. I only wanted to write the stuff I thought when I was worth the magazine that I, that I needed to write. And if you're doing both, writing and photography, it takes a lot of stamina, takes ability, first of all, to do both. And it's, uh, it's like kind of juggling two balls in the air, having trying to tune in on two different radio frequencies at the same time. Yeah. But, uh, it, but if you can do both, if you can do the writing and the photography, you have a chance to give that essay a real special personality. What do, what do you enjoy about writing early on? Like, were you a big reader, like, growing up? And what do you kind of... Well, when I came out of high school, as I say, I didn't pay much attention to anything, although I did I did okay in art school, in, in the art department, in high school, and in English. And I started reading voraciously after high school, uh, things I should have been reading earlier. And, uh, and that, that kind of grew out of that. Mm -hmm. And, and do you feel like your writing has helped kind of inform your photography, uh, being that like sometimes with Nat Geo, I know you wrote stories and shot the photos Would yeah. sometimes the writing help inform what you wanted to photograph to add to the piece or did it kind of feed off each other a little uh, bit? I don't know. Well, as I said, I only wanted to write the ones I felt I really needed to write. Mm -hmm. uh, be, and, and then because I had that, that feeling of needing to do it uh, and going through the effort. Uh, it, 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 it really takes so much more work when you're doing both, if you're going to do them well. Mm -hmm. and, and when you first picked up a camera, uh, do you remember the first camera you started using and like what kind of stuff were you photographing? Oh, the very first camera I had, I had no idea how to work it. All those dials and things setting seems strange it was an argus c3 mm. which was a kind of a rangefinder type camera and i never knew how to use that really and then when i got though into uh, 
into photography at school. I think I had an early Canon rangefinder camera. I didn't have a Leica actually until I got to National Geographic. Is that where you shot most of your Nat Geo stuff when back in the, when you were shooting film back in the day? Was that kind of your preferred camera, the Leica rangefinder? Well, my days at National Geographic in the days were both Nikon's uh, and Leicas and Canon. Mm. I remember, I remember um, Bruce Davidson one time tried to talk to me and told me about his feeling about Canon reflex cameras, and I, I, I switched from Nikon to Canon, but I always had Leicas. Mm. Always had. What do you enjoy about the Leica? I've always, I never owned a Leica. I always struggled because I, I haven't used it a lot. This the focusing and rangefinder. I always struggle with it. What about the Leica cameras? Well, it has, it's a more intimate feeling camera. In fact, I, I no longer have any of my M Leicas. Mm-hmm. The last one I had sitting on the shelf and I kept looking at it and thinking, I'll never roll, load another roll of film in because uh, once I went to digital, I knew I wasn't going to go back to film because the reason I went to digital in 2005 was they took all my films away. Kodak discontinued. Yeah. I, I never cared much for the Fuji films. No offense to Fuji, but they were a little more too electric for my taste. And so uh, I looked at that one Leica sitting on the shelf there. And I thought, well, I'll never roll, load another roll of film to, into it. My kids are going to want it. It's just sitting there. And so I sold it. Like for fifteen hundred or two thousand bucks or whatever you could get from them, those. But yeah. the Leica M cameras had a had a real intimate feel. That's the way a camera should feel. Yeah, I've got the Leica Q. I've got the Leica two forty, what they call the two forty, and they're both. I, I like both those cameras a lot, and they're my main cameras that I use now. Uh, but they don't quite match the old Leica M cameras. Yeah, definitely. And when, when you kind of first started shooting, like what kind of stuff were you photographing? Were you always kind of interested in kind of uh, journalism and like documentary people, stuff? I've always been a documentary photographer. Always yeah. people. Yeah, people. Yeah, I think the human face, I think, is probably what drew me into photography. Uh, I like to draw a lot as a kid. Pretty good as a kid. Mm-hmm. I haven't drawn anything in years and years and years and years. But uh, I think my subjects have always been people. For the most part, I can do an intelligent landscape. I've uh, I've never redone that much with wildlife. The occasional picture, but human people, human human people, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like you say, you do do some landscaping. And some of the work I, I really love, like uh, I have your book. Uh, uh, this one right here, the Port- Portraits of America, and uh-huh. it's really just out in the West, and it is a lot of people, but then you kind of mix in some landscapes, and it kind of gives it another texture to kind of tell the story, which I really kind yeah, of. And that's the, that, that book, by the way, of course, is another combination of my photography and my writing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, definitely. And I guess so book, books, books really are. Excuse me for interrupting you. No, books are really the finest outlet. I think it's nice to have an exhibit of finely made prints in a very nice, respectable gallery or museum. But those things go up and they come down in 30 days or so. And a book providing one good thing, a friend of mine said once, uh, you know, a good book uh, is the best thing in the world and it's also the worst thing in the world. 
because it's they're around forever. And that book doesn't come out the way you'd like it. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a, a toothache forever. You know? Yeah, you can't get it. It's out there, and people are going to see it. Yeah. None of I I always say none of my books is the perfect book, but I'm proud of all of them. And the last book actually, uh, which is uh, my book on Paris, which is done by Lammerhuber in um, Austria, mm-hmm. the reproduction is superb. I'm, I'm, I can't. I all we did color proofs after color proofs after color proofs, and it, the color is really on the money. Yeah, with I was going to ask you about the Paris book. Um, with that book, what was kind of your goal with the pictures? Um, kind of putting that together. I know it came out, I think, in two thousand eighteen. Um, if I'm well, when I was excuse me, when I was approached and uh, asked to do the book, I wanted to put them off for a year and and. Uh, Lois Lammerhumor, the publisher, said, no, let's, I'd like to do it now. So as soon as I signed the contract, mm-hmm. I started making some very brief trips to Paris as, as when I could afford to do it. Uh, live in a little two-star hotel and just be able to hit the streets so that I, I added up once and now I've forgotten how many books, how many, how, how many of the pictures in the book were actually made after I signed the contract and quite a few. Okay. Quite a few were made. And what, what kind of drew you to Paris? Uh, what do you like about that city? What kind of inspired you photographically? Oh, what, much? what can't you like about Paris? It's, it's just always been my favorite uh, favorite city. Now, there are many great cities in the world that I haven't been to. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably a good deal of a bit of a romantic. You know, I like to think I'm play a Renoir or Degas with a Leica and... Uh, I'm just, I'm on the streets of Paris. I, I also see pictures everywhere. So it's like I've said often, it's like walking through a series of one act plays when you're walking on the streets of Paris. And mm-hmm. of course, I'm talking primarily about central Paris. You know, Paris has its dark side. Every city does. Yep. And they certainly do. I didn't dwell on that, you know. So when you're photographing Paris, you tried to kind of, with that book, kind of stick to one area that you're kind of photographing? Well, I would say central Paris. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Central Paris. Yeah. No, I went, I went there a couple of years ago. I've only been there once, but yeah, it was a really amazing. This the cafes and this like the flow of the city, like people really, yeah. uh, that's why I enjoyed it. Like, people sit and they talk and they, it's not so much like you go to New York. It's just like everyone's just well, like, this, move, move, this, move, move. <laughs> this must've been a very difficult year for Parisians because that uh, sitting at the cafe aspect mm-hmm. really got shut down. Yeah. And uh, I guess to go back, I was just kind of curious. I know you have a long career working with National Geographic. Like, how did you kind of first um, start working with them? And was that kind of always your goal to work with Nat Geo? No, no. never was my goal. Uh, I came out of the mid-60s, got my degree at the University of Minnesota in 1964. In those years, the goals, the, the magazines that, still photographers wanted to work for. If they wanted to work for a magazine, it would have been Life and Look, yeah. Saturday Evening Post, maybe Holiday, not Geographic. Geographic was not on, on uh, the radar for most young photographers then. It was still a little boring, if you will. But I lucked into it. It was the most fortunate thing that could have possibly happened. I, through an accidental interview with someone 
that person called the director of photography at National Geographic. I was in Washington. I was on a job hunting trip in the spring of 64. And uh, Yoshi Okamoto was the head photographer, head of all photography for the U.S. Information Agency. Yeah. And he said to me, after looking at my portfolio, he said, have you seen anybody at National Geographic? I said, no, I hadn't even thought of it. We didn't get it in my, in my house, my home. And as I said, at that point, it wasn't a life or look uh, in the eyes of young photographers. But he picked up the phone and he called Robert E. Gilka, who was director of photography, who became a legend at National Geographic. Yeah. And Oki said to him, and I used to have this written down in our envelope. I heard only one side of the conversation, but Oki said to Bob Gilkey, he said, you want to see a good people photographer? And there was a pause. And Oki said, well, damn it, I wouldn't send him over. He wasn't any good. Tomorrow, one o'clock. Okay, great. Thanks. Let's wow. have lunch someday. And hung up the phone and basically changed my life with that phone call. Because wow. at one o'clock the next day, I went to see Robert E. Gilka. He looked at my portfolio. He saw that I was married, had four kids, ages one through four. I'd been a cab driver, a school, uh, uh, beer truck driver, done anything I could to make a buck while going through school. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I could offer you a summer internship, but he said, it doesn't pay much money and it's all over at the end of the fall. So if you can get anything else, you really should take it. And I wasn't, I wasn't cocky. I, it just came out. I said, well, you know, I've been broke for five years. Another three months won't kill me and you might want to keep me. Wow. And that's exactly how it worked out. That's a lot of pressure yeah. with four kids. That's uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I came there then that, that June living in the smallest hotel room known to man about two blocks away from geographic. I can't remember what I paid for it, but mm. it wasn't much because the room wasn't much. And uh, I was sent, Bob Gilka sent me after it was there a few weeks, he sent me to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. He said to go to a cover a Pennsylvania Dutch festival, kind of a weekend week long festival. And he said, well, when you're there, he said, try to get some pictures of the Amish. Turns out they had a completed manuscript for the Amish, a story on the Amish, but they didn't have photographs. A staff photographer from Geographic had gone there, had talked to the Amish bishop, and the bishop told him, no, you can't photograph the Amish people. It's forbidden. It's not forbidden um, because of, uh, of, it's forbidden because they consider it self-admiration if yeah. they're being photographed. Well, I didn't know they had a bishop and I certainly didn't go to see a bishop. I met some young people in the bar at my little motel and the father of one of them had a gravel quarry business and through him, he met Amish, he knew Amish. So he sent me down the road to, and I just went and visited various Amish farmers, asking permission, telling them who I was, what I wanted to do to show their life because there's so much old wives tales about how the Amish live and through what magazine. And I thought that was important. And I got turned down and I got turned down and I got turned down. But then one man said, well, you might, I can't do that, but you might ask my son, hmm. Melvin Stolfus, who was a young Amish married man about my age with a couple of kids. And he thought, I guess I could hang around. And that's the way it started. So I started sending in film of, of the uh, Amish and 
Gilka told me there's just, I stayed, stayed most of the summer there, into the fall. That story was published the next year. It's been credited as my early work with starting with the Amish and the Hutterites has been credited, uh, truthfully, I hope, as kind of changing the face of that magazine. Yeah, because like the only thing the only thing I could say in that regard, <coughs> excuse me, is if it was anything different, it was intimacy. I don't think people were used to seeing intimacy in the photography and National Geographic mm. prior to the, those those early years. Yeah, because like, but prior to that, like, what kind of stories were they kind of covering? Like you said, your your kind of story about Amish kind of changed. The- oh, they they would cover cultural stories and on various types but not not stories that had intimacy to them mm-hmm. and, and and like hearing like I, I i listened to some other interviews you've done and this hearing how like nat geo back in the day like you like you said you you work on these projects for like months at a time and like that like nowadays i don't I, I don't think there's too many magazines it's everything's just so instant they want it now they want it the next day was that typically how you worked like you kind of get an assignment and you kind of spend six months a year kind of working on that one well in those in those early days yeah the the geographic assignments could go on there was there was really no such word as budget (laughs) (laughs) you know you kind of went out and worked until you were done yeah and then you had to call in to make sure it was okay to come back okay so you, are you so you're kind of shooting and then would you just kind of mail the film to yeah, you would mail the film yeah. yeah yeah i would i would work and then i'd watch how the rolls of kodachrome would stack up on my my hotel room dresser and when they got to 2025 20, oh better start shipping some film and and i would send that film in and i would get reports back at, at very early years i even there was a, somebody called film review at Geographic. They'd look to see if your exposures were running okay, if you had any technical problems. They might even send you a sample transparency or two to show you what it looked like. Uh, you know, and, and but it was it was months. Some photographers, the longest assignment I think I've ever had has been probably. Oh, five months, maybe. Wow. Yeah, five months. And then I, if I had that, I'd break it up in two. I'd go for one for three months, one for two, one for two. Uh, yeah, those were those were the days that you could do that. You could obviously haven't been able to do that for a long time. And then the other thing is, of course, uh, you'd come back and you wouldn't see your film for months. And when I would come back and if I'd, I'd be looking through my film, I'd try to look through the rejects right mm-hmm. away to get the depression part out of the way. <laughs> and I would make a lot of mistakes. I've, I, sh- I shot a lot of bad pictures. In fact, I got a very strange compliment once. Some young guy told me that he, had, he knew somebody who had been in their geographic as an intern or had been, had been privy to watching some film editing being done. And he saw some of my film edited. And he said that Allard would come up all these turd pictures and then there'd be something very poetic. <laughs> hey, that's <laughs> so, a compliment. <laughs> well, I made a lot of mistakes. I shot a lot of bad pictures. You know, you shot a lot of bad pictures. But you, you can't be afraid to fail. Mm. You can't be afraid to fail. And you don't shoot the same day. I've seen photographers, you think they shot the same picture 
over and over and over through 36 rolls, you know, and that's what's pointing out. Yeah, I was reading in your book there, and you were talking about how at a certain point, I think in 1980, you just came to the point when you were had spent, I think, over 10 years kind of photographing out West. And you you said in the book that you kind of reached a point as an artist that you felt like you weren't challenging yourself and you had to kind of walk away from the West yeah. and kind of do something yeah. else. Yeah, you got to go to a, you know, you can't keep going back to the same well. I mean, I still love the, the American West and go there if I have an opportunity, but I don't have any drive to photographs there. And then my palette, the palette availability took a great change when I left from the West mm -hmm. uh, into uh, was, well, it ended up in, I went to, I went to Costa Rica. I went to a few places and then Peru is the one that really took me over the top in terms of the color palette. And was that a difficult, like spending so much time kind of documenting one area then going to do something different? Was it a, was it a difficult uh, leap to start shooting something different or is it just no. a, a new inspiration to kind of shoot? No, yeah. If anything, I think it would be a help, an aid. Yeah. An aid. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And how is kind of the working relationship with like the editors at Nat Geo? Um, did you find value in like working with a good a good editor and this kind of that collaboration? Did they kind of uh, well help guide your work at all? Let or? me put it this way: I always look forward to working with an editor who did look at pictures. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to come home after being out on the road for two months and find that he hadn't seen any pictures. You know. And there were some, there were various editors were better or not so good at, in that aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked with some, well, my very best friend, my beloved good friend, John Schneeber, was the best editor I ever worked for. Uh, he's bad, he passed away too early. Mm -hmm. I worked with some other good ones. Uh, and uh, I worked with maybe only one or two and I thought I wouldn't want to work with them again. You know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, and they might feel the same way. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, like you said, uh, with especially with the Amish stuff, there's like an int intimacy to the photographs and you're very close to the people. Um, like, what are some tips you'd kind of give to photographers to, to kind of, if they're interested in documentary work? Like, how do you kind of approach like getting that access and getting people to okay. trust? Well, you? you just said that, excuse me, you just said the magic word which leads to the even more important word. You just said access. Yeah. Obviously access uh, is extremely important to a documentary photographer. I mean, without access, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. But more important than access is that once you have access, what you, what you hope for then is acceptance. Once you have acceptance, they start giving you the pictures. Many of my best pictures were given to me. Yeah. Because once I had access, for whatever reason, they accepted me. They allowed me in their space, and I was able to take those pictures. Yeah. Acceptance is huge, just huge, absolutely. And I, I don't consider myself a great salesman. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I would go in and meet somebody or someplace, uh, I would say, I would tell them who I was, who I was working for, in most cases, geographic, and what I was doing and why I was doing it, why I thought it was important to do. And somehow, I guess, 
one has to try, somehow you have to project that you're not there to make anyone look foolish. You're not there for some sneaky means or purpose. Honesty. Yeah. Upfront honesty and and hope to get that acceptance once you have access. And and when you're kind of uh, walking into a new uh, culture or place or uh, p- people you're documenting, um, how do you kind of approach it? Or do you kind of are you type of photographer that shoots a lot, or do you kind of this be patient and uh, kind of pick uh, your, pick your moments? Or I probably I probably would be a, considered a heavy shooter. Sure. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And again, uh, and I make a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. You feel like even like uh, photography. You feel like you can c- even these days you can c- continually keep learning and kind of growing as a photographer. Well, that you hope. You yeah. certainly hope. Uh, you know, it's whether it's possible back then. You know, can you bump it up a notch a little bit this year? A little better than what you were the year before. Might not happen every year, but hopefully. There's there's some kind of a growth process, some kind of an involvement involvement. Absolutely, sure. Yeah. You know, are you, are you seeing a little bit better? Are you seeing? Uh, and on the other hand, sometimes I'm thinking, God, can I go back and clean it up and see it a little more simple? Because mm-hmm. the thing is, you know, it's when you're making a photograph, you're putting together a puzzle, a documentary photo with intimate different ways it can go together but some are going to be better than others you know and yet can you make that picture accessible it can be complex i know some of my my photographs i felt that have evolved over the years more complicated but still have a handle so they so they become accessible to the viewer Mm -hmm. and when you say complicated what what do you mean by that in terms of the photographs well, I, I, you know, I don't have the vocabulary uh, yeah. uh, of a designer, so I can't really put it in, in those kinds of terms. Mm-hmm. But yeah, an interesting way of seeing, you know, complicated, uh, critical way of, of composition. Now, my friend Jay Mazel says, "Well, you're not composing unless you go out and you and you actually place things here or there. We'll call it whatever you may. If you're not composing, however, you're framing that image, you're making a decision." on how to take that piece of space and how what placement within that space everything finds itself. And I I tell young photographers, don't look at other photographers, look at painters. Mm. I probably have far more books on painters than I do on photography. I love to look at paintings. I love to look at painters of all ilks, almost all ilks, uh, and I think you can learn so much on how they now it used to be uh, a palette. Our, of course, our palette now has changed immensely with digital. Uh, and another thing that's changed really very, very much uh, in digital photography is that now you have an exclusionary ability that you didn't have with film. You know, if you're in a if you're down a edge of an alleyway or in a, a square in Vienna, or you're here or there, wherever you are, and there's a utility pole. Yeah, you don't want that utility pole in there. Well, you can take it out. Not if you're a documentary photographer, you can't. 
Yeah. You have the ability to, but you can't do that if you're a documentary photographer. If you're going to stay honest mm-hmm. to your profession, you have to deal with what is there. Before, you didn't have the ability. Now, of course, you do. You know, but, but I don't. I don't consider I have that ability. And like, how do you approach like being that you you came up shooting film and now you shoot digital? Like, are you trying to like, how do you approach the editing process of your digital photos? Are you trying to match them to your old work or is it just? No, 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 no. I never, I never think of that. I never think of, oh, is this a Kodachrome? I'm not that sophisticated uh, to, 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 or or do I have any desire to think that way? I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, the part I miss about film, the part I miss most about film, and correct me if I've already said this, hmm. um, but I miss that, that element of coming back after being away for a few months, seeing on that, what we used to call the uh, Garrett box, it's a projection box, you'd use a projector on a piece and see your, your film, your pictures projected. Seeing that picture, you made two months ago for the first time and just feeling the glory of a successful image that it it becomes like receiving a gift from afar. Yeah. Made it two months ago and now you're seeing it. Oh God, look at that. Look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of my most iconic photographs is probably two little bass girls running down a, a village road in the Basque country of, of France. Mm-hmm. And I remember making that photograph. I was looking, it was a, right toward dusk, the time the French called the time between dogs and wolves. And the sun had gone down, but there's light coming off the clouds, falling softly on a winding village road. I'm looking down over uh, a vast vineyard and I hear a, a woman's voice in the village ahead of me calling something could tell what because it's in past and then shortly later i hear a little pitter patter i turn and there's two little girls running down the road i turn with my like i make two very quick frames and getting that rare rare feeling that you know that might be something special and i got back months later looked at the two frames one was just Nothing, blur, nothing. And the other was magical, just wow. absolutely magical. It's like getting this gift from afar. Definitely. And it's probably, I'm sure sometimes, because you're shooting, you, like you say, you'll spend f- months on a project and you're shooting so much film, like at some point you probably forget about some great pictures you actually took until you look at the film and you had that time in between shooting and actually getting uh, I don't, they don't too many that come as a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, too, true. <laughs> not too many. Yeah, true. Um, you know, one, one uh, uh, series of photos I really enjoyed. Uh, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, you did a whole series on minor league baseball. Uh, I was kind of curious how that came about and like what was kind of your approach to photographing. Interesting. Mine. Interesting you should ask that. I can't remember where I was. I was in a hotel somewhere. I can't remember if I was on assignment for a geographic. But I, I always liked to be working on something I really liked and then know that after this, I'm going to do another assignment that I already know this. I'm really going to look forward to. Yeah. In this case, I, I had nothing going after I was doing whatever it was I was doing. And then one day I got a call from Tom Kennedy. 
And he said, well, I said, no, you don't have a feature assignment, or I've got two that you might be interested. And I said, great, Tom, what are they? And he said, well, one is Russia. <laughs> Russia. <laughs> you know? Whoa. Okay. Wow. Big, major, major league assignment. Yeah. I said, well, and pictures probably I can sell them with my stock. Although was, I was always a terrible businessman that way. Mm-hmm. What's the other one? He said, the other one's minor league baseball. <laughs> well, you couldn't find two possible assignments more distance from each other Seriously. than Russia and minor <laughs> league baseball. Yeah. I thought to myself, it's the honest truth, the god awful truth. I thought to myself, they'll always do another story on Russia. Always. Do yeah. mm-hmm. one now, maybe 10 years from now, maybe 15, but they'll always do another story on Russia. They will never again do a story on minor league baseball. So I selected minor league baseball. Yeah. Now, and I, I enjoyed that summer. I convinced them I had to have a convertible so I could stand up and shoot out of the top <laughs> of the bus if the team bus was going by. Oh, I can remember driving my first road trip following a a minor league, a a class A minor league rookie club out of Stockton, California. Mm -hmm. And we're going to Reno and we're driving up through all these these, uh, citrus groves, you know, and I had to top down and smelling all that fragrance. It was wonderful and playing lots of good music. I didn't photograph much actual baseball being played. Yeah, I didn't. I That's mean, what I enjoyed yeah. about it. Like, I like the, the picture of the old man eating a corn dog exactly. with that was exactly. like my that's, that's Thank my you. favorite picture. <laughs> Thank you so much because, as as I say, when I show those pictures, and I think I did it when I would show the lifetime achievement. You know, baseball is about national anthems. Yeah, ball, ball players standing with their heads bowed under that great southeast, southwest Texas light national anthems baseball is about a guy shoving a corn dog <laughs> slathered in mustard yeah. into his mouth and holding another one ready to go when that's gone yeah uh, it's it's that kind of thing that baseball was about and that's what i photographed yeah just like all, all the details and the, yeah like you said there's so much to it this like uh yeah this like the people and this the yeah. all of that like when now, you if they if they'd asked me about major league baseball I, I would have hoped I would have been smart enough to turn them down. Why is that? Because, well, because then you've got all these guys, you know, that are making huge money. Mm-hmm. They think they're the greatest thing in the world. These young kids playing minor league baseball, they haven't made enough money yet to turn into assholes. Yeah. You know, they're, they're just kids enjoying a game that we all grew up with. The vast majority of them will never make it to the show, to the yeah. majors, you know? Yeah. And well, they goes- might get up as one guy said, uh, one manager told me, he said, well, I was up there for a cup of coffee yeah. up in the majors. For a, they say it, it's a common phrase. I was up for a cup of coffee. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when you were shooting that, did you kind of focus this on one league or team or? What I, was- I, well, I stayed with, the, I didn't go to the AAA at all. I don't think I did AAA at all. I stayed with the, the lower ranks and I also concentrated because the writer had concentrated uh, on uh, Milwaukee Brewers farm system. Okay. So I stayed with the Milwaukee Brewers farm system for the most part. Would, yeah. would a writer would writers come with you on assignments no. or, what, or not really? No. Almost. I almost never. I think my first trip to Peru, uh, 
oh, uh, Arlen, uh, God, I'm having a senior moment trying to remember the writer that was with me um, on my first trip to Peru, but we didn't go out in the field really together. Mm -hmm. Almost never. Almost never. And then, of course, when I was writing my own stories, there was no need for anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, another one of the baseball pictures that was just like caught me off guard. It was so great. The guy got the baseball player got married, I guess, before the game. So oh, it's yeah. like it's like his bride yeah. in a wedding dress, and then they're like walking yeah. off, and he's in a yeah, baseball. They're walking <laughs> off. He's got a coke in one hand. He's got his bat in the other hand, and she's holding on to his wrist. I think. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and when when you're working on these, I don't movies, think they're married anymore. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it happens. Uh, when you're working on these like long term assignments. Will you have like stretches, like days or weeks where you're, you're like in a creative rut and maybe you're, you're not getting great photos? Is it this or is it every day you're getting good stuff? Uh, I don't re- I don't recall. Oh, I don't recall being in a rut so much ever as I, I did have the occasional assignment where I felt I'm, I'm not going to get this. One of them was San Francisco's Chinatown. Mm. I can remember sitting on the edge of my bed in a Holiday Inn in San Francisco, Chinatown, thinking, I'm not going to get this. And I had a Chinese-American young guy tell me, hey, it's not because you're not Chinese-American. He said, I'm Chinese-American. I probably couldn't get it. It's a closed society. And I couldn't get through to that. And it's not one of my essays I think about or ever look look at at all. It's and not that, one of my more successful things at all. And that was kind of like a Nat Geo thing that they were trying to make happen or something you were just kind of doing for yourself? Was that like a Nat Geo assignment that they sent that you? That was to... a geographic assignment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's interesting. Uh, and, you know, the worst thing you can do, of course, on the other hand, this is not in a general sense, but in documentary work, my feeling is I'm going to react there's no directing involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't be a matter of making a picture happen. That's that. That to me is just not acceptable at all. Now, I I w- I've talked about a picture uh, just recently that I made while on a geographic assignment that I knew they wouldn't publish. It's it's a, a I was I was working on a a story in Paris on on fashion, it was for, we were going to do an all France issue that would come out in July of 1989 mm-hmm. for the 200th anniversary of French Revolution. And I, when I knew they were going to do an all France issue, I said, I'd love to do something on Paris fashion because I'd done cowboys and cowboys. I've done with men. I wanted to photograph attractive women and nice clothes, you know? Yeah. And so I got that assignment and I concentrated on two American models living and working in Paris. And one of them, Tanya, she was a, a, a blonde uh, model from Detroit, I think. And I had seen her once in a mini dress, which I think was a designer called Betsy Johnson. I think it was one of her creations. Multicolored, lots of colors. And I told her one day, I said, you know, I'd like to make a picture of you in that dress. And she had a room in an apartment owned by a young Frenchman who's total goal in life was to cut out pictures of Bridget Bardot and make them into big collages. Wow. And 
His name was Eduardo. So I asked Eduardo, why don't you just put some of your collages on the floor? You sit in that chair. And I asked Tanya to wear that dress. And I even set up a light. And I produced this picture that I knew we wouldn't run. But it was a picture I wanted to make. And eventually, Terry O'Donnell, who was uh, editor-in-chief at, at uh, Esquire magazine back in the 80s, he ran it. But, you know, you can't not make a picture. Now, they could say, well, you shouldn't spend your time working for Geographic doing a picture. Uh, it's, it's involving yourself artistically, you know. And you just don't want to say, oh, I can't make this picture because they probably won't publish it. You can't, you can't go around with that, that mindset. Yeah, you, you got to shoot what inspires you and what, what kind and of... I would, and I can honestly say, I would go out feeling and thinking that if I can make pictures that I feel good about, they can, they can only benefit. The magazine can only benefit. I'm a pretty harsh critic. Mm. of myself yeah you know, i want to do good work i'm willing to make a lot of mistakes i know i'll make a lot of mistakes but i know that if i can do work that i can feel good about uh it has to benefit the magazine definitely and again back to your book you you wrote about how you were supposed to go to India for Nat Geo and you were like super excited to go photograph in India. Um, but then it just didn't happen. And I think they're, they're going to send you to like Naples, Italy, but kind of like you said, yeah. you weren't that excited to go to Italy. So you're like, you know what? I'm going to go to Montana instead. Cause I'm excited to go shoot that, which is. Uh, yeah. Well, Mon Montana has always been a, a second home for me. I, I, you know, I always feel I can use some Montana. I could use some Montana time right now, actually. In yeah. fact, tonight I'm going to listen to a tribute to uh, to Bill William Kittredge, who was a friend of mine who wrote the foreword to yeah. one of my books. Uh, they're having a tribute to him. He passed away very recently. Oh, sorry. So I'll tune into that tonight. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, Montana. I've been there once. It is a there's just like an energy to it, just the nature and everything. You know, a lot of your work. I know. People say like, oh, you're you're the guy, you're a photographer that specializes in America. Yeah, like a lot of yeah, people that, say that. that. Bugged me at one point. I thought, wait a minute, I've been to I don't know how many countries. I haven't been to nearly as many countries as some of my colleagues have yeah. because I I did spend a great deal of time uh, in love with the American West, more than a dozen years where I really concentrated on the West. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've been around. My yeah. passport's been stamped a number of times. Yeah, it is the interesting thing about photography. Like, it seems like, especially like editors and every, they want to kind of put you in a box of like what you are. But like you said, you have like a lot of interest as a photographer. You photograph Paris. You're just talking about shooting like fashion stuff. And it's just, but for some for some reason, it seems like people want to put you in a box. Like, this is, this is what you do, but yeah. not really. Well, that's what I liked about, uh, I you know, Magnum, which I was only in very briefly because I, I ended up thinking I was... We were, I was remarried, we were about to have a baby, and I didn't think I could afford to stay in Magnum, although it was a real touchstone. Yeah. But the thing about Magnum was, and I think hopefully still is, it has that niche of respectability that they're liable to take a Magnum photographer and let him, he or she try to do something that mm -hmm. they're not known for. Maybe a, a very strong documentary photographer to do a fashion thing. 
I would have loved to have done some fashion work, but not in the studio. I was, I really would love to have done street fashion photography, mm. find interesting and make those pictures that you'd want to hang on the wall. That's again, one of my, my kind of my goals in my work was to make pictures that would work for the magazine, but would be capable of, of, of finding a place on a museum or a gallery wall. Yeah, definitely. Answering those two things. Yeah. And, uh, and do it all the time, but no. that was, that was the goal. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I look at it almost like baseball. It's like, sometimes you get a single, sometimes you get a double and every once in a while, hopefully once a couple years, every year or so you get, maybe get a home run every once in a while. If, if you're lucky. Well, uh, I struck out a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that, Bill. You got some badass work, man. <laughs> you got, you got some grand slams in there, man. Uh, another, uh, group of your photos you did a whole series on the blues photographing everyone from like bb yeah, yeah. king uh what was blues music something you were a big fan of prior to well, photographing not, not blues but uh, you know i get asked a lot what's your favorite picture impossible to say yeah impossible you got you got eight million children how are you gonna pick out one but when i get asked about favorite assignment i have to say that despite all the years i loved going out west Montana in particular, as a favorite assignment would probably have to be the, the, the year 1997, I guess it was, that I did the Blues Highway. Mm -hmm. Geographic was wanted to do a story called Blues Highway, which then the writer would write about the, the, the emergence of, of the, the black American blacks out of the deep south going north. In the, late, in the early 1900s and right up into the 40s and 50s. Yeah. Now, I was given the, the pleasure of being able to document the music that came up with it. So I concentrated on black, on black musicians, blues musicians. And to me, that was, uh, if I were not a writer and a photographer, I would be involved in music in one way or another. I am a singer. I, I perform with a, my daughter as a singer-songwriter at times, wow. local gigs. Uh, and it was, it was such a pleasure to be able to go in to a, a, a great room and hear this great music or go to a blues festival and hear this great music. But it also, it also came with a thing when I have to, I realized early on enough kind of warning myself that, oh, wait a minute now, you know, you're hearing this great music, hearing this great, you're having a beer, you're having a good time, you're making, are you, hmm. are you, or are you just having a great time, which yeah. you are, and I always wanted to have a great time on whatever my assignment was, it was very important to me, have a good time, enjoy this, but with the music, when you're surrounded with such visual resource, mm. pick a bird. That's when that, it, it's analogy with, with that quail hunter that walks through the field and all of a sudden, boom, a flock, a covey of quail, 24, 30 quail birds get up and he raises his gun and he fires and he doesn't raise a feather because he didn't pick a bird. Yeah. Pick a bird. You're surrounded by great pictures. Okay. You're having a great time. Fine. Slow down a little bit. Pick a picture. Doesn't mean you have to work on that one picture all afternoon or mm -hmm. for three, four minutes, but just 
pick a bird. It's, it's an analogy that I, I, I talk about a lot. When you're surrounded by a lot of good pictures, that's when you have to be careful. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's this those photos just had like a richness to them, and I really enjoyed it because I believe you were shooting with like uh, flash, and it was kind of a little like, bit sometimes. Yeah, I really enjoyed it because it it was a departure from like your out west stuff, which was mostly like natural light, and it was this I love the drag shutter, and there's this like a richness to it, like uh, you can, yeah, you can enhance things a little bit, you know, you mix the light, ambient light, and that was always wow, kind of I I. I, I used to carry a little business card as a little reflector, and I'd have a little tiny strobe on the top of my Leica. Just, just you just want to brush the subject with a little light. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what, what were some of your, like your favorite film stocks when you were still shooting film back then? Like, Kodachrome. Kodachrome. That this what was it sixty four? When I start when I started, it was twenty five. Then they came out with sixty four. Wow. And then they. It, I'm sure it has something to do with the chemistry that and, and the EPA. You know, Kodak used to send these guys in suits and ties to Geographic all the time. And they'd bring up these charts and they'd tell us this and that about how oh, this, this film was great and for whatever reason. And I remember after they'd come out with Kodachrome 200, yeah, they came and they, and I'd used it a bit, and I made one comment that kind of flustered. They had no idea what I was talking about. I said, well, 200 is a great film. It's got grain, but it's got real character in the grain. But it's not a very good bar film. And they had <laughs> no idea what I was talking about. Because what I meant was that if you were photographing anything with artificial light in red, mm -hmm. there was no definition. Mm -hmm. It was just like ink blot. Like a yep. Rorschach chess. Yeah. You have no I photographed a minor league club in a in a, a stripper bar one night. Didn't get a thing usable out of it because I used Kodachrome and it just it blew everything out. Blotted, just blotted, blotted. There was no definition. I should have gone to an Extrachrome. Yeah. So, yeah. Not anyway. Too. But the but the, the the Kodak films. It's when Kodak discontinued their films, of course, which was when I. Switched to digital in two thousand five. Yeah, because I, I the the Fuji films just were always a little bit too electric for my tastes. And, and would you would you when you got back off the road like would you ever print your own stuff at all or no no I've never. never printed my own work never yeah and never uh, I've never had the desire to because you'd have to set up a lab then which would be you know really. A fine lab, a fine, clean, well run lab. No, I, I never didn't want, didn't want to try to do that. No, nah, that's interesting. And uh, I guess to wrap up, like, I mean, what, what do you think is about photography? What's kind of kept you inspired so much over the years to keep doing this? Uh, what is it you love about photography? Oh, I've just always, since I was a kid, loved making, making pictures with words and cameras. Mm. You know, I've just, I've loved that. Uh, that's, you know, I, when I really decided in my 20s that I wanted to be a writer, and then this man came into the a, a reporting class once at the University of Minnesota and started talking about words and pictures, about photojournalism. It really, it really, light bulb went off in my head on that, bringing the two together. 
Because mm. if you can bring them, if you have the ability to bring those two things together well, and this is important, you know, bad pictures are not going to support good words and mm -hmm. vice versa. Yeah. It's just like we do one of these, when we first started doing all these slideshows with music, you know, which everybody wanted to do and you do, and they can be very wonderful, but the two have to marry well. The, the pictures have to be good, but so does the music and not only good, but they have to marry well, yeah. they have to go well together. Definitely. And that's, 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 that's what can you can do if you can write well enough and photograph well enough and bring those two things together, you can create something that has a special personality. Mm. And, uh, and I never, never wanted to be a general assignment writer in that sense. Yeah. You know, I only wanted to write about, only wanted to write about the things I wanted to write about. <laughs> that, that came true eventually with my photography. I mean, you know, I, I, it sounds being spoiled, but at one point, yeah, I only wanted to photograph what I really wanted to photograph. And it's not about money, although I, I should have made a lot more money in my career than I did. I did very little commercial work and didn't try that much for commercial work. Uh, but it's kind of the, I enjoyed the, it. the personal satisfaction of making pictures that you're inspired by. That's what, yeah. 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 And anything, anything, anything you're hoping to work on moving forward? Any photos, any projects, or anything you, you want to shoot or come? No, somebody asked me, is there something you've never photographed that you'd like to photograph? And I, and I said to him, uh, yeah, I think ballet. I really, at one point, was very close to getting an assignment to the Bolshoi Ballet for the Geographic. Mm. And then they, for some reason, decided not to do it. And that was a huge disappointment. I mean, it's the romantic side of me, I'm sure. I wanted to play Degas and Renoir with a Leica, yeah. you know? And not the, not the performance so much, of God. Oh, the practice, the in the wings. You know, it's always around the edges where you find the most interesting things. Always yeah. around the edges. And with, with ballet, I'm certain it's that way. Definitely. That would have been something always I would have loved to have photographed. Yep. Well, Bill, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to do this, man. Like big, big fan of your work for years and uh, fellow Minnesotan. I was born in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, I was a North Side guy. I was right there by Camden. Hey, man, North Memorial Hospital. That's where I was born. Uh, I was born in the Swedish hospital. Yeah, man. I loved your work. You did the whole book on uh, lakes, Minnesota lakes. Yeah. I grew up going going to those lakes I'm, in the I'm summers. Robbinsdale. I'll be damned. I haven't been. Have you been back? Uh, you got family there? Yeah. All, all my family still lives there besides my parents live in Massachusetts, but all my relatives still live there. So I, I get out there every uh, couple of years or so. Okay. I've got some family. My, all, my immediate family are all gone, but I've got a couple of grandchildren in Minnesota. Yeah, it's a great place. It's a great place, man. The Twin Cities. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I bragged it. up to Twin Cities all the time. The only thing I say is don't go there in January. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, don't, don't do that. You well, know, they had they had excuse me. They had a time a couple of years back where Minneapolis had 30 days in a row where the temperature did not get above zero. It's brutal, man. But they got you know, the state fair. You ever thought I, I was thinking about that. I was like. You ever photographed the state fair? I feel like that'd be up your alley of stuff. You no, I thought that, that's always appealed to me also. Yeah. You got to do a state fair story. Yeah.
those pronto pups, man. The corn dogs. That's that's where you go. Corn dogs. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, I'm Bill. Handy. Yeah. Well, Bill. Thanks again, man. And my uh, pleasure. Thank and, you. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go, but yeah, thank okay. you. Stay thank in touch. You. I will. Take care, Bill. Okay. You bye. So there you have it. That was the William Albert Allard interview. Uh, just want to thank Bill so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, like I said, I've been following Bill's work for years and own a bunch of his photo books and just, just a real fan of his work. So it's great to kind of hear his stories and his journey with photography and working for Nat Geo and this kind of shooting film back in the day and everything he's done is kind of fo- photographing the American West and Paris and just truly amazing work. Uh, so definitely go check out Bill's website at WilliamAlbertAller.com as well as his Instagram, at William Albert Allard. Uh, Lots of cool work up there and uh, definitely worth a follow on Instagram. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, definitely go check out pickdrop.com. It's a new file transfer tool I've been using for a while now. Um, It's just an easy place to uh, share your photos with clients and create private galleries where your clients can make selections and uh, give you feedback and download. Um, I I use it myself and I just have all my shoots stored in one spot. I know they're there. They're safe. I can download download them on the go on my mobile phone or on my laptop. And uh, it's just a easy way to um, share your files and like I said it it was uh, started by a professional photographer so they really understand what photographers need when uh, sharing your photos with clients and uh, I can't say enough about it Uh, but definitely go check it out at pickdrop.com and if you enter the promo code photo banter one word you'll get three months free when you sign up for pickdrop so like I said go to pickdrop.com enter the promo code photo banter and you'll get three months free of the pick drop file transfer tool but as always thank you so much for listening and take care